welcome to Spawn, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Liz Gumbiner. I'm one of the founders of CoolMomFix.com. Today, we're going to talk about the Surgeon General's new recommendations about kids and social media. And I'll be joined by one of my favorite past guests, author and columnist, Deborah Heitner, who has a lot to say about this. And as always, we'll close out our show with our cool picks of the week. So first, let me tell you a little bit about my guest. For those of you who don't know her name, you're probably familiar with Dr. Devorah Heitner's work. She's the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. And her newest book out this fall is called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World, which she wrote to help parents navigate issues around privacy and reputation with their kids and teens. You may have also read some of her articles in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, CNN Opinion. I also am a big fan of her substack called Mentoring Kids in a Connected World, which I think is a must read for all parents these days. And by background, Devorah has a PhD in Media, Technology, and Society from Northwestern University, and she's taught at DePaul and Northwestern, so she really knows what she's talking about here. She's also a mom raising her own teenager in the Chicago area, so this is clearly a topic personal for her as well. Welcome, Devorah. Thank you. Good times raising a teenager in these times, right? No kidding. Oh my gosh. And I'm so happy to have you on because last we talked on Spawned, I looked back, it was episode 170 in 2019, so just before everything went to hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it was called How How to Raise Responsible Kids in a Digital World. But it really shook up a lot of our listeners at the time to hear you talk positively and in a reassuring and not judgmental way about social media. And so I really wanted to have you on now all these years later because so much has changed since 2019 and certainly since 2016 when your book first came out. I kind of love your perspective on what you've seen as change in the landscape over the past few years and whether any of your views about kids and the digital space have evolved as well. Sure. So a lot has changed because I think a lot of kids got a very rapid onboard to things. So, you know, younger kids were texting, everyone was home. So having something that ran on a wireless network became kind of less important because everyone was home on their Wi-Fi, right? So Mm. whether or not you had a phone, so, you know, you had like seven and eight-year-olds plunging into texting while they were home on remote school, whether they were kind of repurposing their school iPads or Chromebooks that way or other things. I think a lot of kids, even more than back then, got into server-based games. Minecraft and other things were already popular, but I think, you know, like Roblox and Fortnite and all those things just became such an important milestone for so many kids in their kind of digital growing up. Yeah. And a point of connection. Yeah. I mean, for my kids, it was how they stayed in touch with their peers. Exactly. It's a way for kids to stay in touch and a way for kids to connect. Then I think TikTok and Discord have really evolved to be pretty central for some kids. And all of those things are different. And I think parents were both very exposed when kids were home doing remote school to kids kind of digital world, but even maybe more alienated from it as well in some ways. And I think a lot of parents are now kind of trying to reset habits and trying to rethink, you know, maybe some of the things they onboarded young kids to or didn't even realize their kids got into, honestly. This is a time for a lot of rebalancing, getting a handle on things, and hopefully for good conversations between parents and kids to look at all of our habits. And I think the other thing that really got kind of shot to hell is a lot of parents' work-life balance with working from home and any semblance of like putting your phone away, putting your computer away, getting off Slack or a Asana, for a lot of families, that kind of went away because it just was always there. And so I think a lot of us need to kind of re-remember, like, what does it mean to unplug? And especially as adults, what does it mean to, you know, not be at work if our work came home with us and never left? I really appreciate the way you talk about it as sort of this global phenomenon created by the pandemic, because it takes a little bit of the onus off of us as individuals. Like, we're messing up. Our kids are online too much. Like, there were really important 
important reasons that it started that way back in 2020. So it feels reassuring to me to think of other parents also going through the stuff I'm going through and asking the questions I'm asking and wondering, like, where did I veer the wrong way? How can I re-steer the ship so that we're in the right direction? Yeah, you're not alone. I think everyone is trying to figure this stuff out. And I think that kids who are maybe more averse to, you know, social media are still kind of figuring out like group texts and discords and it's a lot. And I think most parents are a little bit burnt out and exhausted at this point. Yeah. And also it was a period where on our OutTech Your Kids group on Facebook, pretty much every question parents were asking was like, what's the best tracker to see what apps my kids are on? Or how do I watch them? How do I look over their shoulders? How do I see what they're doing? How can I read their texts? How can I follow their social media? It was all about wanting to be secretly in on everything your kids were doing online. Do you think that's still a big situation? I still don't think that's a great idea. I don't have a lot of prescriptions for parents. I think everyone needs to work out their own ideas that it will work for their family. But I do think Mm. surveillance is not a great tactic because it doesn't teach kids to self-regulate or navigate situations and certainly covert surveillance where they don't know you're there. It can really drive kids underground and keep them from being open with us. So I think it's dangerous, actually. I think it can make kids more likely to choose to have a secret account or do things that might be not good. Whereas I think if we're open with them, I mean, some monitoring can be part of mentoring, but I always say mentoring is better than monitoring. And mentoring is teaching kids how to do things, how to navigate that group text that's blowing up, how to navigate distraction, how to navigate content on TikTok that might be questionable or misleading, and not just catching them doing it, right? Because if we just catch our kids doing the wrong thing and then they're in trouble, they're going to try to hide from us and the whole game becomes about dodging us as sort of these police, right? Yeah. Whereas if we're in contact with them and in a kind of conversation, they can bring that TikTok video to us and say, this is weird, right? And then we can talk about why it's weird. So, I mean, that's really about parenting in general. I think I was just having this discussion the other day where if you're going to say, hey, you can come to me about anything. You can always talk to me if there's a problem or if somebody says something you're uncomfortable with, you see something you don't understand. But then we have to create the kind of relationships where kids feel that they can do that in the first place. And that should be hopefully way before kids have a phone in their hands, I would imagine. Ideally, ideally, right. And of course, it's typical that especially as teens, kids will want a little bit more privacy and space from us. And just because they're not disclosing everything in their lives doesn't mean they're doing anything bad, right? It's also just developmental for kids to want some space from us and want to not answer. I mean, I have a kid who never wanted to tell me how school went, even in like first grade. So I didn't know what it's like, but apparently some kids are highly disclosing in elementary school and then developmentally less so later. And that would be a typical, I have a kid who is never highly disclosing. So I just don't know what goes on. And that's a really good point that you need to know your kids. Yeah. That that every kid is different. And some kids maybe need more of a heavy hand in terms of how much you're knowing or looking at. Like if I was worried my kid was doing something really dangerous, I would probably be more likely to be all up in their business. But until they give me a reason for that, I just try to step back. But I I don't know. Is that right? What do you think? I would still be cautious about reading their text without their knowledge unless you're you're really worried about a life or death situation. I wouldn't do it just because they won't tell you who they sit with at lunch or who they have a crush on. It should be only in a really dire situation where you would look without telling them. Now, if they're an early, like a new user and you're mentoring them on how to use a phone or how to text or how to do social, then maybe you have a plan where you all look at it together once a week or something, you know, and especially if they're very young, a lot of kids are getting phones at nine or 10 or 11. And in that case, it might make sense to look 
look at it together. Well, that's actually a very good segue to what we're going to talk about today, which is about the Surgeon General's warnings about social media and kids' mental health that was just issued in the past few weeks. So just for a brief overview, I will link it up on our podcast page on Cool Mom Picks, but you can certainly Google it pretty easily. It's a 21-page handbook meant for parents and educators. It's really pretty simple. But the essence of it is that social media use by young people is now nearly universal. He writes that there are a lot of ample indicators that social media can pose a risk of harm to the mental health and well-being of children and adolescents. So he issued a call for what he called urgent action by policymakers, technology companies, researchers, families, and young people to gain a better understanding of the full impact of social media use, maximize the benefits, minimize the harms of social media platforms, and create safer, healthier online environments to protect children. So let's break this down one by one, because I'd really love your perspective on each of these things, because I think we read this all as parents. I know I do. And I go, oh my gosh, where do I start? What can I do here? It's a little scary to get a warning like this. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about one by one. So he starts by talking about creating safer, healthier online environments to protect kids. What are your thoughts on that? Like, what would you recommend? If you were to sit down with him based on your knowledge and your experience. I mean, I would love to see the companies, you know, your metas and your TikToks and your big social media companies do more to look at the toxicity of the algorithm and what rises to the top and many, many times multiply their reporting offices so that if you report bullying, harassment, impersonation, content that encourages eating disorders, that it really does get taken down. There's just so many problems with what's on social. You know, it's definitely not all sort of unicorns and you know, cute dances. And Mm. so I think the companies could do a lot to make it safer. What can the Surgeon General do to make it safer? I think, you know, some regulation, (laughs) regulation would be good. Yeah. If he were to gather a panel, which I would recommend that you be on, should Dr. Murthy be listening to my recommendations? Like, I'm just kind of wondering what constitutes a healthier online environment? I think a healthier online environment is one where you can find people who share your interests and where the algorithm doesn't do as much to exploit anxiety and conflict and rise those things to the top above all other things. And I think what we have is an algorithm in most social that tends to sort of reward outrageous content, gross content, Mm. scary content, and also feeds on our attention in certain ways, right? So conflict brings more clicks and clickbait and all of that. So we definitely could have a healthier environment if the algorithms were different. And I think if the companies had a different level of profit motivation, you know, if they had to fact check things, if you could issue mm. a takedown, if someone's putting out misinformation and instead there's like all the incentives in the world to put out misinformation. Oh yeah. I did a whole podcast with Seema Yasmin about her book, What the Fact, that's all about misinformation and disinformation and malinformation. And it's a great lesson. I'll link to that as well. Cause I think about that podcast pretty much every week and that book and how helpful it is to help us identify that. But that's a whole other issue. So when I look at some of the other things he said in his statement, one thing he talked about is where parents come into this and some tips that he offers very generally. So the first one is that he said we can create tech-free zones. How do we do that? So what I've been saying this for years, actually, is to just think about your space. You know, and I've been living in pretty small spaces with my kid most of his life. And so it's not like we have a tech-free wing, but just, you don't want to put this the TV and the video game stuff and all the chargers like right by the comfiest couch, you know, maybe like <laughs> put you know some books <laughs> by the comfiest couch because you'll always go where it's comfy. And if all the digital stuff is in the place where it's also comfy, that's where you're going to spend 
all your time. Mm. The other thing is to think about the bedroom and thinking about sleep hygiene and making sure that you have some unplugged spaces in the bedroom. And if you have little kids that come in bed with you on the weekend, you know, and wake you up, are they climbing over a bunch of chargers and wires? Like that's communicating to them that what adults do is they get to sleep in a nest of devices. We may not realize we're communicating that, but that's what we're communicating. And maybe that's not what we want because we might want our kids to think of their bedroom as unplugged zones where you sleep. Oh, that's so interesting. And you know, I'm thinking about what you're saying about the comfy couch. And I said, oops, because well, look, we don't have a huge apartment. We have one living room area and that's it. And just a couple of bedrooms. And so we do have the kind of tech zone underneath the TV in the living room. And we did that intentionally so that we can see what everybody's doing, basically, so that we're really aware of like who's on tech and where, as opposed to putting it in the bedrooms or in like hidey holes somewhere. So I don't know if that's the right choice or not, but we thought, well, at least it's out in the open where we can see it. Well, I think out in the open is also smart to think about. And it's good to think about where the handheld devices kind of live when they're not in use and if they can be in a drawer, if they can charge somewhere where they're away from sleeping. And we've also lived on one level in an apartment most of my kid's life. And now we are in a place with two floors. And so the idea that we could leave the connected devices downstairs was like never an option before because there was no downstairs. But now we have that. And I'm like, oh, this is really nice (laughs) to be able to kind of go upstairs and leave phones, you know, in another place that's really like there's a disincentive to go and get them, which is just, you know, laziness. And again, it's not like a huge big space. I mean, we still text each other in our home. And I'm always like, why don't we just say something? Like, it's not like I can't hear you, but sometimes it does allow us to preserve privacy. Like I'll text my husband something about my son's day, or my husband will text me to check in about something at work that maybe we don't want to discuss as a family. Oh my gosh. You just gave me this flashback to when I was growing up, my best friend's dad worked for IBM. He was like an early tech guy, for lack of a better word. And he had installed this intercom system in their house that we thought was the coolest thing ever. And they would be like, hey, can you come down for dinner? It was so funny and strange to us. And we thought it was so funny that you wouldn't just like yell upstairs. Mm -hmm. And so now here we are decades later, just doing it on our phones in a smaller, more private way. Yeah. I think when you think about tech-free zone, think about also leaving other stuff out. Like I know it's messy, but like leaving the art supplies out or leaving the musical instruments out so that there's something to sort of pick up when you're bored other than an iPad. That is such a good tip. You know, it's kind of like how they tell you leave the apples on the table, not the goldfish crackers. That what you see is what you're going to grab first. Mm -hmm. So that's a really smart way to think about it. Like have the books around and have the crafting supplies out and maybe that's what they'll reach for first. Mm. Another thing he talks about is that we can model responsible online behavior. And you talked about tripping over the cord nest on the way into the bedroom. What are other ways parents can model good habits for kids? I think we we really want to think about our ways of navigating conflict, of even ending conversations. A lot of that isn't getting played out for our kids because we're thumbing it out instead of voicing it out. And so our kids aren't hearing us the way we heard our parents or our siblings on the phone. So they're missing chances to hear us make decisions like, oh, this is big, heavy news. Maybe I'll talk to this person in person or I'll call them. I won't text this. And we want to actually start talking through some of those decisions about what kind of news to share in a different format, how to handle if we're not getting along with someone or having a misunderstanding, you know, if we need to move a conversation maybe from text to phone to kind of get to yes or get to understanding. These are things we need to talk to our kids about because otherwise they have no clue. Mm. I thought I was doing such a good job with this. And then, you know, I called my kid for the first time when he first got a phone and he answered and said, what? 
And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I thought I did a better job than this, you know, but apparently uh, I failed. <laughs> oh, teens <laughs> have no phone skills at all. Yeah. It's amazing to me. They'd be like, I don't know what to say. I'm like, you say hello. And then you say, this is so-and-so I'm calling about XYZ. Like if they have to change their doctor's appointment, they're like, I don't want to do that. It's mm-hmm. so funny. Like my teens are really uncomfortable with the phone, which is, I don't know. I remember being in third grade and learning how to make phone calls. And then you made small talk with people while they held the phone and waited for the kid to come downstairs. So I'm glad you mentioned that also, because when we think about digital behavior, it's not just social media. Mm -hmm. Another point he talked about was limiting time on platforms, like both by yourself and, and, you know, limiting your, your kids' time. Do you have suggestions for how people do that? Do you set timers? Do you use like the in-app controls to say you only get this much time on this app a week? Or what do you recommend? I keep things a little simpler. And I will say that, you know, for us, gaming is definitely more of a draw for a long period of time in our house. My kid's not really into social media. So I think it really depends what your kid is into and what they're getting out of it. You know, is it a source of joy and connection that leads to like making plans or sharing fun, creative videos? Or is it a place where your kid is going to feel shared and compared and bringing them down? So you have to really look at your child or your children. How are they experiencing social? You know, for many kids, it's a mix, right? Sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not so fun. So Mm. it can be hard to kind of draw that line because for many of us, social is a mixed bag of joy and pain, right? And so we want to look at, is your child able to step away when it's more painful? Or is it causing interference with doing things they need to do or should be doing, like getting outside or doing their chores or even just having some unplugged downtime, let alone, you know, if you see kids quitting activities. I mean, I think we all trimmed our activities during the pandemic and probably it was good for a lot of families. Like maybe people were doing too much. Mm. But I think if you see your kid quit, like the one thing they love and it's to like do more TikTok, that would not be great. you know. (laughs) So I think it's, you know, how is it fitting in with other things that they care about? What is the mental health effect for them both in the moment and overall, right? So how does it make them feel when they're actually scrolling How does it make them feel when they post? If they do post, a lot of kids are mostly scrolling or direct messaging and not even posting that much. Oh, yeah, that's true. Parents always say to me, my kid only has one picture up on Instagram. I was like, yeah, hello. It's their texting app. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They're not like necessarily posting or they curate their feed. So they just take everything down one day and then put up something new. A lot of people do that too. And I think that the kids are much more savvy about privacy than we think and much more than most adults. Mm, So that's a good point because the fourth thing that I wanted to call out that Dr. Murthy had put in his advisory was about talking about privacy specifically and data sharing. And I thought that's such a good question for you since you have a book coming out all about that. Absolutely. So I think that the kids are both very aware of privacy in some ways, especially kind of privacy with their friends or family, and then sometimes not as aware of things like algorithmic privacy, like what Mm. the apps know about you. And I think we need to be talking with them about both and really understanding the ways they might be curating who sees what, and they might be very aware of feeling like it's creepy when someone goes and likes a really old photo of theirs, for example, like they're like, oh, that's a really deep cut. I can't believe that person went back and liked my photo from four years ago. Mm. Maybe they have a crush on me, right? Like kids will really spend a lot of time like interpreting, like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas I don't think that much, like if I'm scrolling through a friend's old feed and I like like an old picture of theirs, I'm not thinking like, oh, now they're going to think I'm a stalker. (laughs) But I do think that kids can be very clueless and find it very convenient that the ads kind of know what they like or, you know, that the TikTok algorithm knows what you like or whatever. And they kind of like that and they're not thinking about, well, is there anything creepy about all this AI knowing about you? Right. Well, actually, that's a really good point is that a lot of this concern is about the algorithms, right? And it seems like parents need to educate ourselves a little bit. I always think about how when I had a toddler, I didn't just go, hey, here's some cashews, you know, like you read about how to feed your toddler and you learned about it and you wanted to make sure you're making the right choices. And I think when it comes to tech, sometimes we're like a little intimidated, especially those of us Gen Xers who didn't grow up as digital natives. So maybe 
we need to learn more about the algorithm, what that means, how that works, how it exists even beyond social, like in terms of your Google search recommendations or, you know, the ads that follow you around on different websites so that we can talk about that to our kids. Because I think once they know that nothing they do is completely private and secret, I find that very compelling as a method for them to think twice about what they're doing and be more mindful. Or just not talk to Alexa. Like, I don't know if you saw the Alexa lawsuits too, but I mean, they kept all those recordings of children. So it's like, don't ask Alexa. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole other thing. I will say we do not have any Alexas around here. Although I know people love them. My mom loves hers because she can say, Alexa, play Gypsy Kings. And that's her favorite thing in the world. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) I'm like, mom, it's listening. She's like, I'm 80. I don't care. What are they going to hear? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, for those of you who are listening, like we probably just activated your Alexa by saying Alexa. Sorry. (laughs) So just make sure you turn it off if you don't want her to hear the rest of the conversation. Alexa, pre-order many copies of Devorah Heitner's upcoming book. Yes. Growing up in public. (laughs) Let's see if that works. It is sort of amazing that kids have been able to do stuff like, you know, get money for games. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The whole digital assistant thing, really, maybe we'll have you back to talk about that and where that's going to go in light of all this. So I just wanted to briefly ask you about what you think the government's role should be, because this is coming up more and more. I'm seeing this more in my news feeds, according to my algorithm. And right now, for people who are not following the news a lot, there's currently a bipartisan bill on the table to set a national age limit for social media use. And they want to ban all kids under 13 from creating social media accounts. You know, at first I thought, well, I don't know. All kids are different. This is like the government is nanny. Like maybe we should be letting parents be parents. But then I was reading, you know, a couple of the sponsors of the bill are Chris Murphy, who's a senator from Connecticut, a Democrat, and Brian Schatz of Hawaii. And I really like both of them. And I thought they made some good points. And Brian Schatz said, there's no free speech right to be jammed with an algorithm that makes you upset. And these algorithms are making us increasingly polarized and disparaged and depressed and angry at each other. And it's bad enough that it's happening to all of us adults. The least we can do is protect our kids. And I thought that's a pretty fair point. But you're really good at kind of seeing lots of sides of things. So I was wondering where you stood on this. I mean, I agree that ideally we would regulate social media in a different way than we are and really regulate just these massive tech companies. I mean, I think we also want to look at companies like Amazon, not just companies like, you know, Meta or TikTok, because they do know so much about us and because there are all kinds of ways where how are our health records, you know, getting mixed up with our advertising preferences, getting mixed up with our eye color and our weight and our, Mm. you know, how many kitten videos we watch, like who should know all of those things? And it's clearly a tremendous advantage. So, I mean, I think you want to look at books like, you know, Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism. I think we really do want to be thinking about this. I don't think it is a free speech question because I believe in journalism and the Mm. whole model for journalism has really been undermined in some ways by the way the internet makes everything free and sort of equal and an article in a reputable newspaper looks exactly like somebody's blog. You know, it's like, it's hard to tell the difference. So we need to teach kids how to look for sources, how to vet something if they don't know if it's true. All of that is really important. And then again, to recognize that we don't want to push the buttons that enrage us and you don't want to hate watch things. Like I've talked to teenagers about this. They'll say, oh, I'll watch this horrible YouTuber who says these mean, hateful, racist things or, you know, xenophobic, misogynist things. Mm. And I'll hate watch it. And I'm like, you realize that person is making money from your hate watch. The profit model is such that like your eyeballs are bringing them profit. Yeah. And your outrage is not helping you. If you find the people who disagree with that person and you say, you know what, instead of listening to this misogynist, racist terribleness, I'm going to go find the people in my community who are doing anti-racist work and social justice work. That is where you're going to find the joy and connection 
because I think a lot of us go to the place of outrage because it feels legitimate. But then if we stay there, we're not actually helping. We're lending our eyeballs to that person and we're kind of bringing ourselves down. So what we want to do is find community and solidarity. And maybe that's online and maybe that's in person doing something in our local community. I think a lot of us are going to want to do things that are very hyper local. I got involved in, I'm not running, heaven forbid, for school board, but I got involved in helping progressive school board candidates in my community, which was something I never honestly thought I'd get involved with, but it really helped me because I live in a really progressive community and the book banners were here. I was like, oh my goodness, the book banners are coming for our schools. I'm going to get involved in the school board. And it helped a lot more than being on social media, just like retweeting things against book banning. Right. Like it helped me feel better. Like I can retweet all the anti-book banning stuff in the world and I probably will still go on Twitter and do that, but it doesn't actually make me feel better, nor do I think it actually stops anyone. Like I don't think any book banners read my tweets and are like, oh, you're right, Deborah, let me change my ways. Well, I think that's a good point to go back to kids on social media who are watching things to feel like, well, I just want to be aware of this or I want to know what these horrible people are saying or yeah, I'm hate watching it. I think it's also good to have conversations about what's a more productive way to deal with the things that matter to us, whatever they are. If kids are into animals and kitties and puppies and rescue, they don't need to watch animal torture videos to know that there are horrible things in the world, right? Exactly. Like It's better to spend your time getting involved with positive things that will actually help. I mean, you wouldn't believe what's out there. Yeah. Like, you know, fifth graders told me they've seen videos of puppies being thrown off of buildings and stuff. Oh my gosh. I mean, so kids have seen horrible things like that. Well, this is why I think people are turning to lawmakers to say, like, help us out. I think parents are drowning a little bit and they feel like, well, maybe some regulation is good. And, you know, it's interesting if you look at the Surgeon General's advisory, he includes quotes from leaders from different medical associations from the AMA and from the Association of Pediatrics. But one of the quotes I really liked was actually from Anna King, who's the president of the National PTA. And she said, every parent's top priority for their child is for them to be happy, healthy, and safe. We've heard from those families who say they need and want information about using social media and devices. This advisory from the Surgeon General confirms that family engagement on this topic is vital. And I really liked that because it helped throw it back to the parents and not just say like, here, government, you deal with it. But to say like, we need more resources. We need to learn more about this. We need to talk about this in our homes more and educate ourselves. So where would you suggest parents go for the best information about social media guidance besides your own website and your own Substack and your own books? Like what resources do you like or are there certain journalists or authors that you find really helpful? Yeah, I mean, I would go to Jacqueline Nessie's Substack as well. She does a really good job summarizing a lot of the research and questioning some of the more facile connections people will make. Like the sky is blue on Thursday and people had smartphones on Thursday. So the smartphones mean the sky blue, like some of the correlations, you know, the sort of smartphones are destroying a generation because kids are sad and like, we'll just ignore climate change and the Mm. school shootings and the pandemic and say like, for sure they're sad because of TikTok. And I'm just, I'm not convinced. And I think Jacqueline Nessie does a really good job in her Substack of really looking at the research and saying what it says and what it doesn't say. I really like the new book Behind Their Screens by Emily Weinstein and Carrie James. I think that's great research. They talked about things like kids timing how long they wait to respond to a text, for example, to not seem too eager and sort of thirsty and some just other really good insights from young people about sexting. I really like some 
Samir Hinduja and Justin Patchen's work on cyberbullying, and I cite them in Growing Up in Public. All of these people are cited in my book, actually, that I just mentioned. Common Sense Media is an oldie but a goodie. They're kind of massive, and it can be hard to figure out like which resources you want, because right. there's a lot there, but also Media Smarts Canada, and there's another group in Australia. All of those are useful, especially if you're like, I don't know what this app is. What does it do? Right. Of course, you guys as well. I think OutTech Your Kids is a really great resource. And just joining a community of any kind, whether it's your own community, whether it's the parents on your kid's soccer team, and just trying to open up the conversation, just being like, okay, when did you get them a phone and how's that going? Or how's the Minecraft going? Or what do you think about Snapchat or Discord? Like, it's really helpful to just have other parents to bounce things off of. And I think if we can get past the shaming and guilt and kind of recrimination that a lot of people feel around screens with other parents, we could have really good community. I love that. I always feel so reassured whenever I hear from you or read anything from you. Like you're just so helpful and non-judgmental and I appreciate your guidance and I really hope our listeners do too. If you would like to hear more from Devorah, which you should, you can find her on Instagram at Devorah Heitner, PhD. You can go to devorahheitner.substock.com. I love your Substock. Or just devorahheitner.com to see everything that she's up to, including where to get her new book, which is coming out. When's it coming out? September? September 12th. Very exciting. Day after my birthday. Maybe we'll celebrate together. Very nice. <laughs> a birthday and a book day. That sounds good. So now it's time for... Cool Picks of the Week! Cool Picks of the Week! And Devorah, let's hear what you think is cool this week. So we just read as a family a great book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And I know I'm kind of <gasps> late to this party because it was a bestseller. No, you're not late because it's, it's, it's so literally good. up next in my queue and I have not read it. It's <laughs> so good. And if for those of you who are Gen X and do come up playing video games, like the people in it are game designers. And so like all the old technology will just bring you a lot of joy and they, you know, have floppy disks and stuff. It's very fun. Okay. You just like know it even further up in my queue. Now that Ted Lasso is over and Succession is over, I can put more time back into reading all my books. <laughs> You're going to love this one. This was like a hard one to put down though. So make sure you have some time coming up. Oh yeah. Well, summer's coming up. So that sounds perfect. I want to recommend actually an article. My dad, this is so cute. He's 80 and he still sends me like the coolest articles and things he's reading, like old school, like, hey, look at this link. And he sent me a link to atlasobscura.com, which I love. I've recommended it here before. And there's a article called The Retro Lover's Guide to Road Tripping. And it's by Sam O'Brien. And it's this great article about this one guy who's traveling around America to visit all what he calls the last vestiges of roadside Americana, like old frozen custard places or like an original McDonald's that still has like the big golden arches or like an Arby's neon sign. It's just so cool. If you're into like kitsch and Americana, like I love all that kind of pop culture trivia and it's like all of that stuff combined. It's a great article. It's just a fun read and it makes me want to get out there and see so much in this country that I have not yet seen. It just makes me realize there's like a whole world of interesting stuff that we'll never get to. And at least I can start trying. That sounds so fun. I love it. <laughs> I know. Well, I'll link it up and you, you can find it on Cool Mom Picks as well. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Spawn. Huge thanks to my guest, Dr. Devorah Heitner, and to our awesome engineer, John Bowen. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to subscribe. And if you want to leave a nice review, that would be a wonderful bonus. And hey, if you want to talk about today's episode, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or if you're on Substack like Devorah and I are, look us up on Substack Notes. It's a little like Twitter, only filled with brilliant authors and readers, commenters talking about the issues of the day in more respectful ways than some other social media channels. Thank you so much for listening to Spawn. This is Liz. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.